Welcome to World War I Centennial News, the Doughboy Podcast, episode number 142. The Doughboy Podcast is about what happened a hundred years ago, during and after the war that changed the world. And it's not only about then, but it's also about now. How World War I is still present in our daily lives in countless ways. But most important, the podcast is about why and how we'll never let the awareness of World War I fall back into the mists of obscurity. So join us as we explore the many facets of World War I, both then and now. I'm Teo Mayer, the Chief Technologist for the Commission and your host. Welcome to the show. This week on the show, we're going to open with A Century in the Making, where we're going to meet Derek Sanson, who is organizing a local grassroots effort to raise money for the memorial at his local American Legion post, named for a World War I veteran, Milton J. Brownscheidel. For our 100 Years Ago segment, we hear about a World War I Medal of Honor recipient who also hits the fundraising trail this week. A royal family begins a national thank you tour of America. And you'll hear about the predictions for the modern automobile. Then going back 101 years to 1918, we hear from President Woodrow Wilson about a congressional initiative he feels is a moral imperative. We have our next installment of the feature, Born in the Month of, where you'll meet some famous, some notorious, and some interesting people born in the month of September and learn about their connection to or service in World War I. For our Historian's Corner, we speak with Dr. John Morrow, the recipient of the 2019 Pritzker Military Museum and Library Literature Award for Lifetime Achievement in Military Writing. And we're going to close with The Buzz, where we explore some of our favorite stories, posts, and articles that you'll find on social media and on the internet. All this week on World War I Centennial News, the Doughboy Podcast. The Doughboy Podcast is sponsored and brought to you by the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission and the Doughboy Foundation, dedicated to remembering those who served in World War I and to building the National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C. Well, following the great news from last week that Washington's Commission of Fine Arts has given their final approval to the memorial design after four years of intense development, we're now more focused than ever to complete the fundraising to build it. A large part of that effort is aimed at foundations, corporations, organizations, and wealthy individuals. But there's also a very important and robust grassroots effort being taken up by some very committed and hardworking veterans and veteran organizations. This is really important in helping to get the project over the top, so I wanted to profile one of those efforts for you. Last week, just two days before Washington's big CFA approval announcement, an article ran in a small local paper called the Kenton Bee, the official newspaper of the village of Kenmore and the town of Tonawanda in western New York. Dateline, September 17, 2019. Headline, Town Resident Raising Funds to Support World War I Memorial Project in Washington, D.C. The story opens with, Town of Tanawanda resident and Navy veteran Derek Sanson, a member of the Milton J. Brownscheidel American Legion Post 205, is on a mission to help make the National World War I Memorial a reality. 
Now, I personally think that this is such an important story that I invited Derek to join us and talk about how he and his fellow legionnaires at American Post 205 are keeping faith with their World War I veteran brothers and sisters. Derek, it's a great pleasure to have you join us today. Thank you for having me, Teo. Derek, before we get into what you're doing to help raise the money to build the memorial, let me ask you a fundamental question. Why are you doing this? Well, Teo, as a veteran and lover of American history, I have a great respect for those, both men and women, who have served and sacrificed for this country. And World War I is, in my opinion, a vital piece of that history, which helped forge modern America. That is a piece of our history that has been greatly forgotten, that most people just frankly don't know much about. We're out there trying to not only raise money for the memorial, but to try and fill that void with people when we speak to them about the First World War. Tell us about your fundraiser and the upcoming plans. Well, we have had so far one successful fundraiser, a public fundraiser that we're very proud of. The big piece of it is to get out and talk to people about a project that most people that we've interacted with so far had never heard of it. And I feel like the project is in the home stretch now, and it's more important than ever to get out and talk to people about this. Earlier, you told me that this means a lot to the members of American Legion Post 205, in part because your post is named Milton J. Brownscheidel. Can you talk about that? We are named after a World War I veteran. We don't have a World War II GI or a Vietnam grunt. We honor them all, but our post is named after Kenmore, New York's first World War I killed in action. And that means something. It means something to us, and it means something that this generation no longer has a voice. So as veterans, it's our job to be their voice. I'd like to bring someone else into the conversation. David Hammond, U.S. Army retired, the Veteran Service Organization and Military Liaison for the World War I Centennial Commission. David, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Tail. Good to be with you again. David, what Derek and Post 205 are doing is really important and meaningful to the National World War I Memorial effort. Are there other posts and other veteran groups doing this? Absolutely, Tail. I've noticed a huge uptick of interest among veteran service organizations of all kinds to help us get over the top by making individual donations. It's a groundswell of excitement and passion. It continues to gather speed as we head that ever important finish line. Veterans are absolutely crucial to this grassroots effort because the veterans community are a natural constituency, just as Derek said, because they're connected. America should never forget its veterans. Again, David, the commission recently launched a recognition program for posts and organizations that are fundraising for the memorial called the AEF Memorial Corps. If a post or organization raises money for the memorial, how do you recognize them? A post that makes a donation, whether that post is named after a World War I veteran or not, they get a special certificate that's only to be given during these commemoration years for the recognition of a post and its financial contribution. And forever, the post framed that, put it in their spaces, and will always be recognized, both archived in our material, but also in that community as being an AEF memorial post. Derek, any closing thoughts? From a post standpoint, the vast majority of the members are very excited about this and have been very supportive, helping out at the handful of events we've had. 
We do a lot of talking about honoring our principles, honoring our traditions, honoring the past, but sometimes you have to get out and put some action behind those words and principles. And that's what we're trying to do. As veterans, we may not be serving our country in uniform anymore, but we still care about our country and our community and its history and what it took to get us here. The First World War was, in many ways, the beginning of the American century and what kind of a nation that we became. So it's important to remember our roots, and this cause will help us do that as Americans. Veteran Derek Sansone is a member of the Milton J. Brownscheidel, American Legion Post 205 in Western New York, and member of the Navy CB Veterans of America. And David Hammond is the Veteran Service Organization and Military Liaison for the World War I Centennial Commission. We have links to Derek's article and their contact information in the podcast notes. It's time to jump into our centennial time machine and go back a hundred years to see what was happening in late September of 1919, followed by a story that goes back an additional year to 1918. Fundraising for causes taken up by veterans is something that veterans do even back here in the last week of September 1919. Making that point this week, famed World War I Medal of Honor recipient Sergeant Alvin York heads out on his own fundraising tour. York, a pacifist at the start of the war, who goes on to capture 132 German soldiers pretty much single-handed, now faces a different kind of challenge. Since returning from over there, York has dedicated himself to raise money for a cause that he's taken up, to build a high school in his Tennessee mountain hometown of Pall Mall. Newspaper accounts from the East Coast to the West report on his travels and speeches to raise the necessary money to build and support the new school. Colonel Gerald York, Alvin's grandson, tells us more about his grandfather and how he turned down many lucrative national endorsement deals to pursue his own vision of bringing education to his community. My grandfather, when he came back, was offered about $250,000 in 1919 money to endorse various things. And he said, I did what I had to do to save my comrades. And so, no, the uniform's not for sale. He was asked later in life, what do you want to be remembered for? Your actions in France, being awarded the Medal of Honor, meeting the president, And he said, I want my legacy to be that I brought education to rural Tennessee. Sergeant Alvin York, a war hero, a true man of integrity, and a role model for us all. Also touring the country during early October of 1919 are the Belgian royal family, King Albert, Queen Elizabeth, and Prince Leopold. It's a thank you tour to the American people for their support of Belgium in the Great War. They arrive in New York on October 3rd, but the schedule has already been rearranged due to the illness of President Wilson after his major stroke. Rather than visiting Washington and the president first, which would be protocol, the royals head off to Boston, then across the country, returning to D.C. at the end of the month. From the New York Times, an illustrated article on page 11 anticipates how World War I will affect the practical use of the automobile, predicting certain ideas that will not come true until a hundred years later. Dateline, September 30, 1919. Headline, the car of the future will be a lightweight car. 
These notes are from the recent National Meeting of the Society of Automotive Engineers. The article includes, According to the Automotive Engineers, the featherweight car of the future will roll up to 30 to 40 miles for every gallon of gasoline. It will be able to turn upside down all existing tables of car performance and service. William B. Stout, consulting engineer from the United Aircraft Engineering Corporation, says, quote, We should have a 900-pound, five-passenger car that will be better working than any now on the market. This will be made possible through war experiments for airplane construction. The tide of development for motor transportation flows irresistibly in the direction of the car of greater economy of operation, better riding qualities, a car that will impose a smaller tax on its owner and upon the communities whose road it travels. The car of the future will be a light car. Now, let's slide back another year to 1918. Let me set the scene. It's the end of September 1918. Our doughboys are entering the fray in ever larger numbers. The tide of the war is shifting. The first major action with American troops under American command has helped push back the salient at Amiens. By this end of September, we've already lost over 35,500 men. But this is just the front end of what will become known as the 100-Day Offensive that will include the largest and deadliest military battle in all of American history and which will result in an unexpected armistice on November 11, 1918. And that's what's going on in France. Meanwhile, back home in the U.S., the Wilson administration is still deeply vested and filled with an idealistic fervor and a vision of a new world looming. From the headlines of the official bulletin, the Government's War Gazette. Dateline, September 30, 1918. Headline, Extension of suffrage to women is vital to winning the war, President tells Senate. Urges the immediate passage of measure giving them the vote. The woman's help needed now and after the war. Verification of our professions of democracy necessary to convince the world of our leadership. And the story reads, The President addressing the Senate at one o'clock this afternoon said, Gentlemen of the Senate, The unusual circumstances of a world war in which we stand and are judged in the view, not only of our own people and our own conscience, but also in the view of all nations and peoples, will, I hope, justify in your thought, as it does in mine, the message I have come to bring you. I regard the concurrence of the Senate in the constitutional amendment proposing the extension of the suffrage to women as vitally essential to the successful prosecution of the great war of humanity in which we are engaged. I have come to urge upon you the considerations which have led me to that conclusion. It is not only my privilege, it is also my duty to apprise you of every circumstance and element involved in this momentous struggle which seems to me to affect its very processes and its outcome. It is my duty to win the war and to ask you to remove every obstacle that stands in the way of winning it. Now, Wilson goes on to make an impassioned plea to pass the amendment. On the following day, October 1, the Senate takes up the suffrage bill. 
Suffragists, dressed in white gowns with purple sashes, watch impatiently from the gallery as the final debate begins. Supporters offer one last defense of the bill. Women had selflessly supported the war effort, Senator Charles S. Thomas of Colorado observes, quote, Why do we ask American doughboys to fight for European rights to self-determination? Thomas wonders, while 50% of our population is disenfranchised. After the debate concludes, Senator Jones successfully beats back efforts to amend the bill, and the roll call begins. When the final vote is cast, ugh, the amendment fails just two votes short of passage, <laughs> but it will eventually pass. And that's how it is at the end of September in 1918 and in 1919, a hundred years ago, in the war that changed the world. It's time for a monthly segment called Born in the Month of, where you'll meet some of the famous, notorious, and influential people whose lives and careers were affected by World War I. As you hear the facts about them, can you guess who we're talking about? If you can't, don't worry. We're going to tell you at the end. Born in the Month of September will be presented by Dave Kramer. He was born on September 13, 1887. He shared a lot more with his very famous father than just a name. They both loved hunting, exploring, and soldiering. In 1918, as a doughboy, he suffered from both a gas attack and a bullet to the knee. He had two brothers who also fought in World War I. One tragically and famously lost his life as a fighter pilot, devastating his family and a nation. Our September son was instrumental in the founding of the American Legion and remained in the reserves between the wars while also pursuing political and publishing careers. When America entered World War II, he insisted on returning to active duty and was commissioned as a brigadier general in the Army, where he would earn the Medal of Honor for his actions on D-Day as we landed on the beaches of Normandy. Sadly, he succumbed to a heart attack just a few weeks later. Who was this soldier? It was Theodore Roosevelt, Jr. Born on September 9, 1860, this social pioneer did not serve in World War I. In fact, she is better known as a pacifist who tried to keep the United States out of the war supporting Wilson's 1916 presidential campaign slogan, He Kept Us Out of War. While Wilson did an about-face to declare war on Germany just a month after he was inaugurated, our social activist continued to preach against it as a leader in the Women's Peace Party, which earned her a great deal of ire and scorn. After the war, Herbert Hoover recognized her organizing skills and enlisted her to help him round up food to feed a starving Europe, thus polishing her tarnished reputation in the eyes of many. She continued to advocate for peace throughout the 1920s, earning her the Nobel Prize for Peace in 1931. Who was this crusading warrior for peace? Her name was Jane Addams. Born on September 12, 1888, he was already a popular singer and dancer in France when war broke out in 1914. 
he was almost immediately injured by a piece of shrapnel that entered a lung. Recuperating in a nearby village, when it was overrun by Germans, he was captured and moved to a prisoner-of-war camp. As he recovered, he was relieved to learn that his injury did not end his singing, and he was soon lifting the spirits of his fellow prisoners with song and dance. Determined to escape, he learned of a prisoner swap program that would allow captured ambulance drivers to be returned to France. Given the gift of gab, he convinced camp officials that there had been a mistake and that he was actually an ambulance driver who should be released. It worked. So off he went after two years and four months as a prisoner of war. With the English that he learned from fellow prisoners, he became an international movie star, famous for appearing in a blue suit and a boater hat with a cane. He appeared in 40 films from 1914 until his death in 1972, including Love in the Afternoon, Can Can, and Gigi. Who was this dapper and debonair crooner? None other than Maurice Chevalier. Thank heaven for little girls. Thank heaven for them all, no matter where. The youngest and last of our September birthdays was born on September 24, 1896, in St. Paul, Minnesota. He flunked out of Princeton University, maybe because his first name was simply the letter F. He served in the military but never saw action. The war ended as his unit was preparing to ship out to France. This young second lieutenant self-describes as the Army's worst aide-de-camp, possibly because he was more focused on writing his first novel than on military matters. That first novel, This Side of Paradise, was published in 1920, when he was only 24 years old. This was followed by a string of novels of the Roaring Twenties featuring both war veterans and flappers, often living shallow, drunken lives. The most famous of these is The Great Gatsby. Who was this author? Why, it is F. Scott Fitzgerald. Thank you, Dave. That was Born in the Month of September. We have our research links for you in the podcast notes. And with that, it's time to fast forward into the present with World War I Centennial News Now. During this part of the podcast, we explore how World War I is being remembered and commemorated today. Here is where we spotlight the ongoing remembrances and commemoration activities surrounding World War I and World War I themes. On Saturday, November 2nd, an annual tradition in Chicago will take place at the Pritzker Military Museum and Library called the Liberty Gala. The gala celebrates and supports the work of the museum and library and honors the men and women of the U.S. Armed Forces, past and present. The annual event features the presentation of the Pritzker Military Museum Lifetime Achievement Award for Military Writing. This year, that award is going to Dr. John Howard Morrow, Jr., a noted historian and educator with an incredible career. His areas of expertise include modern European history, war and diplomacy, World War I, and world history. 
Dr. Morrow was the first African-American faculty member at the University of Tennessee in the College of Arts and Sciences, winding up in the mid-80s as the head of the university's history department, making him the first African-American to chair a department at UTK. Later, he became the chair of the history department at the University of Georgia and has been a guest professor, featured educator, or lecturer for the National Air and Space Museum, the National War College, the Air War College, and the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. He co-authored a book with a friend of the podcast who's been on the show several times, Dr. Jeffrey Sammons, and the book is Harlem's Rattlers and the Great War, The Undaunted 369th Regiment and the African-American Quest for Equality. Dr. Morrow is here with us today. Dr. Morrow, congratulations and welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Teo. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning. Well, John, let me start with your early career. I find it fascinating that you came up in academia in the South, breaking some race barriers as a historian, which seems to me intrinsically different than it would be for, say, a mathematician or a biologist because it's dealing with history. Can you talk a little bit about those early days? It just so happens I grew up in the South, in Alabama, Georgia, and North Carolina as a child because my father was a French professor at HBCUs, black colleges and universities. And we traveled abroad, and then I went north for my college and graduate education, but determined to come back south. And so I came back to the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, and now I'm at the University of Georgia. I'm starting my 48th year of university teaching. And the main thing that brought me back was I felt once I went north just how lacking education was in the southeast in those years and not just for black students like myself who were very very disadvantaged but even for white students and i felt when i returned that it was time for everyone to step things up so the thing about being a first is that you have to break a lot of barriers i never had problems with my students and these are overwhelmingly white student populations have always accepted me and i've always talked in my classes about gender and race because a number of historians who teach these subjects don't especially in military history and so there's a social component i discuss military industrial affairs which comes back to the military industrial complex and a variety of other things that contemporary students over the years have really appreciated. So my classes have been well attended. I've won teaching awards. But I think the main thing is that I did feel that I had something to offer. And I've had more than my share of issues with administrations. But students, no, it's been a real pleasure. That's great. Great answer. Now, you did a book with Dr. Sammons. We had him on the show recently, and he actually made the statement, and I think it's really a poignant statement, that you can't really study the progress of racial equality in the United States without looking at it in the military. Would you tend to agree with that? Absolutely. First of all, Jeff and I have been good friends and colleagues for years, always in different universities. Some people might consider us in certain political and administrative realms troublemakers, but we <laughs> share that sort of approach to life. But my family has a very strong record in the military. My great uncle on my mother's side was awarded a Distinguished Service Cross and a French War Cross of Croix de Guerre in the First World War. 
My wife's father was a regimental surgeon in the 92nd Division in Italy. My uncle on my father's side was an infantry officer in Korea and Vietnam. And our son was in special forces and military intelligence in the war in Iraq. So we have a very long tradition of military service on both sides. And what you learn when you study military affairs is that literally in the 19th century, after the Civil War, the Navy was integrated. Of course, the Army had created four black regular regiments. But once the 20th century hit and the racism of imperialism, of white supremacy, the white Southerners really did not want any black servicemen bearing arms and fighting for the country because they were afraid that these men would return and essentially upset segregation. And it was understood by African-Americans and white Southerners as well, that if you were willing to shed your blood for the United States, then you deserved equal citizenship rights, which African-Americans did not have. And it's fascinating because the French actually have a term for it. It's called Lampo du Song. It's the blood tax. In other words, if you're willing to fight, then you deserve equality. And that's been one of the fundamental problems in this country over the centuries since African-Americans have fought in every war, that it was this continued denial and actual denigration, and I mean even lying, about the qualities of black servicemen and black officers to keep them from being able to claim equal rights and equal citizenship, which they should have been able to do in the First World War and weren't. Well, you and Dr. Sammons did a book together, The Harlem Rattlers and the Great War, about the 369th. Can you tell us a bit about both the book and how your collaboration came together? Yeah, we'd known each other for years. Jeff is a specialist in African-American history and specifically sports history. And in New York, he was approached by some editors a number of years ago to do sort of a pictorial history on the 369th since they're out of New York. And he called me because I've been an established military historian for years and written a book on the Great War and Imperial history and asked me if I would join him. And I said, yeah, I'd be happy to. What we then realized when we talked with these folks was they wanted a straight pictorial history, and we really wanted to do a scholarly history of this regiment, which, although it's somewhat known in African-American circles, most people don't realize that the 369th, which was originally the 15th New York National Guard Regiment, is one of the most famous regiments of the First World War, and in terms of its achievements, has the best record of any regiment in the American Expeditionary Forces and never lost a foot of ground or a prisoner to the Germans. And it spent the longest time, 191 days in the front lines. But at the same time, when white Americans learned of it, they tended to denigrate its activities. And when the U.S. Army War College wrote its final report assessing the performance of black soldiers in World War One, it completely ignored the achievements of the 369th. It doesn't even appear in the records and concentrated on the negative incidents in 
the history of African-American service in the First World War, rather than talking about their achievements and the medals that they had legitimately won and how the French would praise them. Since my great uncle fought that war, and he fought in one of the regiments that was tarred by white Southerners as being ineffective, and we learned that it wasn't. It was not the 369th, it's the 368th. I felt that it would be, shall we say, a repayment of a debt that, in the sense, I owed my family, but also in the sense of responsibility to the country to tell the truth about black servicemen in World War One. But I think during the centennial period, so much of that has come up and come out and really sort of been exposed and talked about. I don't know the story of when it wasn't talked about, which is interesting. I only know during the centennial period how much we did talk about it. So uh, very interesting. That's one of the keys to the centennial period, that we were able to raise these issues when you were thinking about the notion that people now are aware of the First World War. This is part and product of the centennial, because I've taught the subject for years, and it's tended to run under everyone's radar until this concerted effort on the part of the World War I Centennial Commission and the state commissions and various people who were willing to support us to get this information out and explain the nature of that war and the nature of the times and conditions. Well, John, focusing on World War I more broadly, We've been calling it the war that changed the world. We're sort of rebranded it from the Great War and so forth because it really seems to be a good essence for it, the war that changed the world. If you were to address World War I from that perspective, what does that bring to mind for you? For me on the global scale, it is the war that changed the world. Americans are not as aware of it because we only fought it literally for a good part of the last year of it. But when you look at the globe, what you experience is the collapse of major empires. When the war began, French and British, the German, the Russian, the Austro-Hungarian, and the Ottoman empires were contesting for power. At the end of the war, the French and British empires have gotten stronger, but feebler in terms of their financial connections and also because a number of the peoples in those empires are now agitating for freedom and independence. But the German, the Austro-Hungarian, the Russian, and the Ottoman Empire have disappeared. They've collapsed and been divided up into a welter of different national states based on different national groups. And they've also lost the colonies that they had, which have fallen either to the British or the French. And even when you look at the world now, my son was fighting in Iraq for a number of years, and he was well aware of the history and so on. He said, you know, you don't understand what's been going on in Iraq ever since we went there. If you don't understand the history of the First World War, when the British took over in Iraq from the Ottoman Empire and then proceeded to organize it the way it had been organized all those years. So it is most definitely the war that changed the world. The United States by default and Japan, we often ignore that, actually rose in the level of the great powers because of the decline of the European powers. Well, okay. I want to switch now to, in closing, a personal question. Again, I want to congratulate you on being the recipient of the Pritzker Military Museum and Libraries Literature Award for Lifetime Achievement in Military Writing. So 
Now that you're in the part of your career where you're being honored for lifetime achievements, what do you think about that? <laughs> Does it make you want to relax or drive harder? Oh, no. K.O., I'm 75 and I haven't retired <laughs> and I don't have any plans to retire. Some of my colleagues, some of my students ask me these things and I say, well, I'm enjoying doing what I'm doing. So, first of all, being singled out for the award is an incredibly gratifying thing. But I'm one of the few folks, one of, I think, only two who have really spent a lot of their time working in the First World War, which is very nice because we tended to work in obscurity and it wasn't a very popular subject, which didn't bother me because I write for both an academic and a popular audience. But it spurs me on in the sense that I have a book that I've been working on. In fact, I deflected from it to work with Jeffrey Sammons on the Harlem Rappers book because I thought that was so important. But it's on the history of the Second World War from the perspective of the first and also dealing with it as a global and imperial war. So at my age, barring any unforeseen circumstances, I hope I've got a few years left to finish that. <laughs> but thanks for a kind question. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're, you're certainly welcome. So, Dr. Murrow, thank you for joining us today and sharing your insights. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure talking to you, Teo. You take care. Dr. John Howard Morrow, Jr., a noted historian, author, and educator with an incredible career, who's being honored this month as the recipient of the Pritzker Military Museum and Library Lifetime Achievement Award for Military Writing. And that brings us to The Buzz, where we explore some of our favorite stories, posts, and articles the team has found on social media and the internet. Here are some selections currently making the rounds. From Bloomberg, September 24. Headline, How World War I Changed Watches Forever. World War I was the first major historical event where timekeeping migrated from the pocket watch to the wrist. Exact and synchronized timing for starting and stopping shelling, leading to mile-wide synchronized attacks over the tops of trenches, was doctrine. Wristwatches freed up the hands that would normally be used to fish out a pocket watch, and World War I expanded the use of the wristwatch, or trench watch as they were also called, to millions of men. From the NBC affiliate in Dallas-Fort Worth on September 21. Headline, World War I Veterans Honored in Denton, Texas. Volunteers from across Denton County, Texas, gathered at two cemeteries to honor World War I veterans. The Texas Veterans Hall of Fame and the students from the University of North Texas placed medallions of valor next to 176 World War I veteran headstones. The group researched each of the names and added the soldier's story to their website. Quote, These are hometown heroes, Army veteran Jim Davenport Jr. said. These young men answered the call at 18, 19, and 20 years of age, and some of them did not come home. Here's a story that we've been following for weeks, now being reported by RecordNet, news worth sharing online. The headline reads, Convoy Crosses Country to Honor World War I Vets. Dozens of veterans, volunteer drivers, and supporters participated in the 100th Military Vehicle Preservation Association Transcontinental Convoy. The convoy is retracing much of the route of the original and first 1919 transcontinental convoy that went from Washington, D.C. to the West Coast. 
One of the participants was Lieutenant Colonel Dwight D. Eisenhower, who would go on to become the 34th President of the United States and would be instrumental in creating the national highway system. And there's little question that this convoy experience deeply influenced him. From local AM radio station WIBW, the headline is Orange County, Indiana Historical Society Hosting Traveling Exhibit. The Orange County Historical Society will host The Great War from Ration Lines to Front Lines, an Indiana Historical Society traveling exhibit. The exhibit showcases Indiana's contribution to the war effort and to the war's long-lasting effect and local impact from the wartime demands for steel machinery and equipment on Indiana's towns and cities such as Indianapolis, South Bend, and Gary. It'll be on display at the Orleans Public Library through October 14th. From the Herald-Dispatch, September 14, headline, West Virginia Man Reunited with Father's World War I Items. An American World War I soldier's gun and medals left in a safe deposit box were reunited with his son thanks to the West Virginia Treasurer's Unclaimed Properties Division. David McKee, 75, said that he was shocked to find out that his father, Mason Shelby McKee, had taken the gun, medals, and other items to a Huntington Bank safe deposit box for safekeeping. After Mason McKee died in the early 1970s, the items remained unclaimed and eventually ended up in the custody of the state treasury. West Virginia State Treasurer John Perdue presented the gun and the medals to McKee in a ceremony at his hometown in Huntington. And there you have it. Some of our picks for stories buzzing around the internet and online that remember World War I and World War I-related events. We have links to the articles for you in the podcast notes. And that wraps up episode number 142 of the award-winning World War I Centennial News, the Doughboy Podcast. Thank you for listening. We want to thank our great guests, contributors, talented crew, and supporters, including veteran and memorial fundraiser Derek Sansone. The Commission's David Hammond. Historian, author, and PMML Lifetime Achievement honoree, Dr. John Morrow. Thanks to Mac Nelson and Tim Crow, our editing team. Juliet Kowal, the line producer for the show. Dave Kramer, researcher, writer, and presenter of Born in the Month of September. J.L. Michaud for web support. And I'm Teo Mayer, your producer and host. The U.S. World War I Centennial Commission was authorized by Congress in early 2013 to honor, commemorate, and educate the nation about World War I on the occasion of the centennial of the war. For over a half a decade, the Commission, Commissioners, staff, and our many associates and supporters have labored to inspire a national conversation and awareness about World War I. We brought the lessons of 100 years ago to today's educators, their classrooms, and to the public. We've helped to restore World War I memorials in communities of all sizes across the country. And now, as the Commission's charter to honor, educate, and commemorate the centennial of World War I has been successfully completed, the full focus of the Commission is turning to a capstone mission to build a national World War I memorial in Washington, D.C. that after a century will finally stand in this important international nexus to honor the memory and sacrifice of the men and women who served this nation during those transformative years of World War I. We want to thank the Commission's founding sponsor, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, as well as the major contribution of the Star Foundation. We also want to thank our podcast sponsors, the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission and the Doughboy Foundation. 
The podcast and a full transcript of the show can be found on our website at www.cc.org forward slash cn. You'll find World War I Centennial News, the Doughboy Podcast, in all the places you get your podcasts, including iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, Spotify, Radio On Demand, even on YouTube, asking Siri, or asking your smart speaker by saying, play WW1 Centennial News Podcast. The Commission's Twitter and Instagram handles are both at WW1CC and one Facebook at WW1Centennial. Thank you for joining us, and please help us meet our funding goal for building the National World War I Memorial. If your organization is interested in helping with local fundraising, just contact us. Go to WW1CC.org and click on the contact button in the menu bar. Thank you. Thank you for listening. So long.